0: sermon. So our sermons right now, we're talking about the story of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. It's littered with all these Old Testament quotations. If you read through the Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel, you find one after the other after the other, an Old Testament quote that takes you back to some book of the Old Testament where a prophet made a prophecy or where Israel went through some defining experience. And then the birth of Jesus Ends winds up drawing on all those experiences. And when you dig into the Old Testament narrative, you're going to find new life for the Christmas story. You find a little bit of why it meant so much. Well, today we're going to dig out this prophecy about Bethlehem, about a, a leader coming out of Bethlehem. So today we're going to talk about the wise men and King Herod, some familiar characters. But our real goal is to get into Micah. And the reason we want to do that is because we want everybody in the church today to stop and think about who you're following as a leader. Like, are you giving yourself to the people that just bark the loudest or look the coolest or are the most popular? Are you following people who just get the most tweets or sell the most books or their podcast is the coolest? Like, how do you pick the leader you follow? What kind of a person are you becoming as you follow them? Well, listen. If God's given you leadership potential, what kind of leader are you becoming? Like, who are your role models? I don't know. I've I've, I've thought about this during the week and I. I kind of have come to the, I guess, cruel realization that despite our morals and our ideals, we wind up accidentally feeling this urge to gravitate to leaders that are charismatic and loud, people who are effective or proud. And sometimes we stop and we we wind up casting our lot behind leaders who aren't godly at all. And we have a thousand reasons for justifying that. It doesn't matter if we're talking about high school sports or the college campus. It doesn't matter if it's your workplace or in your household. I just, today, I want us to stop and I want us to read the story of Christ and consider who He came to be as our King. And I want to ask you, at the end of the sermon, listen, are you willing to follow Him? What if following Jesus becomes unpopular? Like, what if it's harder What if it means that you're going to make some decisions that aren't cool in your circle of friends? Or what what if it means that you're going to deviate significantly from the status quo in order to follow him? Would you still do it? Would you still pick him for your leader, even if this shepherd king that was prophesied 800 years before his birth, even if it's hard or different or weird, would you do it? Well, we'll see. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 2. So let me offer a prayer on our behalf, and then Matthew. Lord, I ask your grace on our congregation this morning as we read the scriptures. Father, just like every Sunday, we very much want an encounter with you. Lord, we've come here to worship you. We're seeking you with our whole heart. We want you to direct our path, to nudge us, to change us from the inside out and keep changing us. And Father, we stand on the scriptures that we read today. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the courage to break free, to not be conformed to the image of the world, but to follow Jesus Christ no matter what it means or what it takes. I pray, God, that you'd shape our families, our households, our personal identities, our workplaces, our hobbies, the sports fields, our schools around the leadership of King Jesus. I pray, God, that you'd teach us how to make that a reality in our world today and ask for your blessing as we study your Bible in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 2. So the story is familiar enough here come the wise men the magi. I want to read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, and then we'll go back and talk about the story. So as you're reading through we're looking for a prophecy about Bethlehem. So kids in the church, if you're reading your Bible, you find that prophecy about Bethlehem when I read about it, you put your finger on it so you can find it later in the service. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the prophets, the people's chief priests, and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Very familiar story. You have three wise men from the east. The Bible calls them magi. We don't know a, a ton about them. They are kind of these mystery figures. In the Christmas program that our choir led for us last week, and I thought they did a great job, in the narration they read that these were the king makers, and I think that's cool because they truly have set out to make a king. So whoever these people are, we know that they're wealthy and they're wise. They're respected leaders from the East. They studied the stars for signs from the gods, and they had seen signs in the heavens that the Jews had a new king. That there was born among the Jewish people a king who would rule them. Well this was important enough to them, or they felt strongly enough that God convinced them they packed up their camels, and they made an 800-mile trip to come and find this king. They wanted to be the first to worship him. They felt like God was sending them. So they follow a star. Well, the star leads them to Israel, and they go to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they ask what anybody would ask. and say, hey, listen, we're trying to find the king. Now, this is a special king. And so King Herod comes out and says, hey, we're trying to find the king. We believe there's been a, a new king born to the Jewish people, and we want to find him. Well, Herod is a trickster, and he acts like he wants to go and worship Jesus. He doesn't. He wants to exterminate him so that there's no threat to his family line. But basically, he says, well, I, we don't know. Let me, let me find out. So he calls all the leaders together. So imagine that here comes the chief priest and the high priest and all the teachers and scribes, all the wise men are gathered to King Herod. And, you know, they've, they've got to be disturbed. The Bible says that King Herod was disturbed when he heard that there was a new king. And the Bible says that all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And so here come all these teachers and leaders and priests, and they're gathering around King Herod. He's got a simple question. Okay, according to the Old Testament prophecies, like all the things that God has said and done, if there's going to be a Messiah born in our lifetime, where should these three men look for him? And we say three because they had three gifts. We don't know. There may have been 30, but there are three gifts. But where do the wise men, where are these magi, where do they go to find this baby? Well, the Bible gives you the idea that they knew right away. It's, well, There's a prophecy in Micah. It's in Micah chapter 5, and we'll go there in a minute. Well, there's a prophecy in Micah chapter 5 that says, out of Bethlehem will come the one who's going to rule us. Okay, so now we've got the answer. The answer is, is Bethlehem. Now, Herod's going to play his hand in a very sneaky fashion. King Herod is currently the king, and these magi... They've got a tough choice to make as this story plays out. They have met King Herod. They know of King Herod. Everybody knows of King Herod. He's fantastic. Well, they're about to have to decide between Herod or a baby because Herod pulls them aside secretly and says, listen, listen, listen. You know, I should go and pay my respects to this child, and I just don't know where to find him. Will you go on to Bethlehem? Would you, would you find him for me? When you get done, come back and let me know. I'm going to come right behind you. I want to worship this child. Boy, I just can't wait. As the king of Israel, I can't wait to represent my people worshiping this baby. So they go off to Bethlehem. Well, the star reappears. God works in their lives. They find Jesus, and they give him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three prophetic and heavy gifts that basically anoint Jesus for his life. Now, a life where he's going to die on a cross to redeem us. But in the nighttime, as they're sleeping, God sends a dream to them and warns them sternly. Don't go back to Herod. He wants to kill Christ. And in two weeks, we're going to see the aftermath of Herod's jealousy. But for tonight, or tomorrow, this morning, you need to know that the angel told them, don't go back, don't go back. It wouldn't be a good idea. Herod wants to trick you. So they went a different route. They didn't go back to Herod. And so Herod has no idea where Messiah was born. They had to choose who's the real king. Is it this little baby born a pauper in a tiny village, Bethlehem, where five miles away you've got Herod the Great living in Jerusalem? Now, this sets up kind of a contrast in leadership that I want to explore just a little bit before we go into Micah. All right, so you've got Herod the Great or Jesus, and the Magi have got to decide which one they're going to honor. Are they going to honor the most powerful man in the Levant? Are they going to honor this baby that was born? in a humble little place, laid in a manger. They're bringing the only fine gifts he had. Let's talk about Herod the Great for a minute. Now, in church, we all know Herod was a bad guy. We know in two weeks, we'll read the story, Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem. We, we probably even heard in sermons that, did you know that Herod, towards the end of his life, he became so consumed with his power, because that's what power does, eventually it consumes you. He became so consumed with keeping his power that he wound up killing three of his sons and, and his, one of his wives, because he thought the wife was a threat to his throne because of her ancestry, so he had her killed. He even killed one of her nephews who he made high priest. He makes the guy high priest. The guy does a great job as a high priest. People love him. Makes him jealous, so he drowns him. Kills his wife, kills a nephew, kills three of his kids. Kills them because he thought that they might want power too early. They might be a threat to their dad. That is how consumed Herod became with his own power as his life went on. That's the guy that slaughtered all the children in Bethlehem. And he did other awful things that I can't wait to tell you about, but I'm going to two weeks from now. Now here's the deal. In church, we know he was a bad guy. But what we don't realize in church is that he was also, I hate to say it, a very effective leader. He got things done. Listen, let me just point this out. Church, everybody can respond to this. So we still call him Herod, You don't earn the nickname The Great for being average. I mean, Herod The Great was the quarterback for the high school football team. I mean, I don't know if he really was or not, but he probably would have been. He sang on the front row of show choir. The guy was amazing. He made a 34 on his ACT. I don't even know what you can make anymore, but he did great. He was straight A's. He was valedictorian of his class. He went to Alabama and played football for Nick Saban. How about that? Herod the Great didn't earn the nickname the Great by being average. Let me tell you a little bit about the guy's life. He was governor of Galilee when he was 25 because his dad was a fantastic political leader. And his dad was assassinated. But he was governor of Galilee at 25. And and what he did is this. So At that time, it was really hard to live in God's land because there were so many robbers and thieves. Like, you know, in the story of the Good Samaritan, a man was going up to Jerusalem from Jericho and he fell among thieves. Well, thieves and robbers were everywhere. Herod the Great was the one man that could run them out. His iron will, his determination, he chased them out of caves. He let men down on a bucket from ropes to go in a cave and run all the robbers out. He cleaned out the riffraff so that people could live in safety. Well, the Parthians came in from the east to start a coup. He ran for his life and he fought and they gave him the throne in Rome and they said, if you can take it, you can have it. So for the next three years, he led war to fight for the throne that was rightfully his. And he took it. He took it. And once he got it, he showed himself to be a master politician. You need to know that for well over a hundred years, The Jewish people had been impossible to rule. They had been a thorn in everybody's side. And Herod the Great is the only guy that seems to have been strong enough or ruthless enough or determined enough or savvy enough, who knows, to rule them. But during his lifetime, the people were ruled by a Jewish king. And after that, they're going to be always ruled by these governors from Rome. He was a master politician. People in Rome loved him. He's a great architect and builder. If you go to the Holy Land tomorrow, you're going to tour the temple and somebody's going to stop and show you the huge stones of the foundation of the temple. And they're going to tell you, those huge stones are put in place by Herod the Great and they are still standing today. And that's true. I mean, he decorated the temple and funded it being built, had some ideas for it, and helped see the temple fully restored to its great glory. Like temple building was what he did. But you know, it's not just Jewish temples. He also built a bunch of pagan temples. He built some in Jerusalem and some in other cities. He even helped rebuild pagan temples in Greek towns far across the Mediterranean because it helped him with his political alliances. He's a great builder. A lot of things that he built, people still love. He built the Talladega racetrack uh, not exactly he built a hippodrome in jerusalem which is like a racetrack for chariots and everybody loved it he built amphitheaters he built aqueducts to bring water in from a distance he built harbors in a harbor town called caesarea maritime and it became a wonder of the world you got to know that he was a peacekeeper master politician master builder and he had a long family line herod the great in a nutshell was a really great leader if you measure leadership, not by their character, but by their accomplishments. Like, he earned the nickname, the great. And part of what I want to do in this whole sermon is make us stop and think about what kind of leader we want to be. Like, n- and I need you to understand, nobody, nobody in his lifetime or near it, God has many things done in Jerusalem and all around as Herod the great so the magi met him and the prophecies from the old testament indicated that the messiah who would save the jews is not Herod the great is a baby and this baby that was born god chose it that the baby would be born not under Herod the Great's watch, not in his temple, not his family line. He wouldn't be born into wealth and power and fame and fortune. He was going to be born very humbly, very simply, in the tiny little village of Bethlehem. David's hometown, but a small village nonetheless. A shepherd's village. In Luke's gospel, you realize there are shepherds outside tending their flocks at night to come and anoint this baby shepherd. Come and praise Him for the first time. Humble, tiny, poor little village. Born and placed in a manger, not a fine crib or a royal nursery because He's born to two peasants into the line of David but nearly forgotten. And it makes us stop and think about leadership and what kind of leader God wants us to follow but what kind of leader we're supposed to be. And to do that, I want us to to uncover this prophecy a little bit. So the Magi are going to go find baby Jesus wrapped in simple cloths, not royal robes, laid in a manger, not the king's castle. They're going to give him their fine gifts, and they're going to leave. But let's uncover this Old Testament prophecy. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 said, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Micah. So Micah's prophecy came 800 years before Jesus. A lot had happened. A lot of time had passed since the time that Micah gave this prophecy of hope until the day of Jesus. So in 800 years, this is what you watch. You watch the destruction of Israel. Ten tribes crumble as Assyria conquers them. Not long after that, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed. The holy place is burned. And the temple is undone. Like stones are toppled. The gold is stolen and Babylon, conquered Jerusalem. The exile was full on. So we're going to read a prophecy from 800 years before Jesus nearly. And as you hear Micah's words, you need to know that for centuries, this hope of one being born in Bethlehem all but dissolved. Because all we got was pain and exile. But let's read Micah chapter 5. We're going to read verse one all the way through verse 4. I want you to see the setting for this prophecy. Here we go. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. In other words, Micah knew that the armies of Assyria and then Babylon, they're on their way and they truly would strike Israel's rulers. Israel's rulers had become pagan. They had Wandered far from God. They didn't lead with godliness or holiness or courage. And as a result, God was sent in punishment. And Micah is basically telling the leaders, like, God is going to strike you on the cheek. The armies are coming, and they're not, they're not going to stop and turn around. We are moving into exile. But there's hope too. Look at verse 2. Here's the word of hope. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath. Though you are small among the clans of Judah out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are of old from ancient times therefore Israel will be a, will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the israelites He'll stand in shepherdess flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. That's a prophecy from Micah. Micah basically says, We're going to be slapped on the cheek. And what you need to know is that the rulers, the leaders during Micah's time, they were more like King Herod than King Jesus. They were more interested in worldly fame or power or possessions. And in Micah chapter three, you get basically an oracle against false prophets who were preaching what people wanted to hear instead of the words of God. Priests who were taking bribes, rulers who were who were undoing justice. In Micah chapter three, the Bible says this. I'll read verse nine. So you get a sample of Micah's hurt against the leaders. Micah three nine. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe and her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, leaders, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Micah had seen what leadership had done to Israel when leadership was focused on the things of the world. reputations, money, popularity, fame, a list of accomplishments, a great resume. It may have won friends, it may have wowed people, but it led people far from God. I want to show you in Micah chapter 5, we recognize in verse 2 that Bethlehem will be the birthplace of God's chosen one. Like the exile will end with the birth of a child in Bethlehem. It tells you a few things about Bethlehem, doesn't it? It says, though you are small among the clans of Judah, that's verse 2. It's almost as if part of the idea was that Jesus needed to be born, not in Jerusalem, not in the castle, not in the palace, but it's almost like part of the idea was he, he needed to be born somewhere humble. Yes, Bethlehem was the ancestral home of David, so it connects him to the lineage of David. But more than that, even in Micah, Bethlehem was a small and humble place. Hey, do you remember when David was chosen that he wasn't even invited? Do you remember that when God chose the greatest king that would rule his people, David was left in the field shepherding the sheep because he wasn't big enough or rich enough or powerful enough or impressive enough. He wasn't old enough. He didn't have the birthright. Do you remember that David wasn't even invited to the anointing because in the eyes of man, it didn't look like he would be a strong enough ruler. And then God said, I don't judge by the outward appearance. I look at the heart. It's almost like the humility of Bethlehem was important for the birth of Jesus. It's almost like he could not be born in Alexandria, Egypt. He could not be born in Sepphoris. He could not be born in Jerusalem. He had to be born in a humble and simple place. It reminded us of the humility of the day that David was called. And here he is, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, with no wealth and no treasure to his name. And had the Magi not brought gifts, I don't know how he would have survived the exile he would face in Egypt, but that's for next week. For this week, I want to recognize that in Micah, this little humble town, five miles outside Jerusalem, it actually helped characterize good leadership. Listen to me. I don't believe that God wants you to feed your pride or to toot your own horn, or to become blown away proud of your accomplishments. If God does great things in your life, that is awesome. But guard yourself. You saw where it took King Herod when he became so proud of who he was and determined to hang on to it at all costs. You contrast that with a child born in a manger who was born so that he could give himself away. Born for the purpose of dying for his people's good. So if God gives you influence or opportunity or leadership, I want to challenge you today to really wrestle with Herod or Jesus. Like, Who do you want to be? Do you want to follow the servant-leader pattern of Jesus? or, Or do you want to fill your palace and hear everybody say, Oh, you are the great suffering servant or the great? Well, in Micah, we see other things that are important. Verse 4. And this is brought over into Matthew. Matthew brings this up into the quote. Matthew chapter 2 tells you that Micah chapter 5 lets you know that he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. And then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. The glory of Christ resounds to the nations. Not because of his accomplishments for his own namesake. Not for his own power, or strength, or fame. Not because he ruled with an iron fist. That was Rome. That was Herod. The glory of Christ resounds to the nations. And a part of his legacy is that he shepherded his people. Listen to me. He gave. He's led as a servant leader. The Bible says in verse 4, they will live securely. That's what a good leader does A good leader isn't leading so that his name can grow great. A good leader is leading so that others can be blessed under his care. So I want to just kind of stop and challenge all of our middle schoolers and children in the church for a minute. If God is using you, if he's giving you influence at your school, or if you're just right now a wallflower that nobody even notices, I just want to ask you, what are you going to do with whatever influence he gives you? If it's over one person or if it's over the entire school, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it so that your name can be great or are you going to use it so that you can bless everybody in every desk, in every hallway at that school? See, I I don't think it's too early as a child to start learning servant leadership. Let's bump up a notch. What if you're in high school and God made you the center of attention of this season? Like, that's awesome. Use it. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it so that you can bless others, so that you can give your life away, so that they Will live securely as you shepherd them. Are you gonna care for the flock? Or are you gonna take from the flock? You're gonna be the good shepherd where you're giving. This baby born in Bethlehem, he sets a paradigm for every high school girl, for every college student, for grandmother, for everybody in band, show choir, for every adult, for every senior adult in our church. At what point in our journey following Jesus do we transition from following servant leadership model of Jesus where we give and love and follow His commands, where we lead for the sake of God's glory in His name? At what point do we transition from that and begin to feed our own ego and become the great? At what point? We never, never. You never retire from the leadership model of Jesus. And so here we are, we kind of face, I guess, the same question that they faced. What are we going to do? I want to point out to you that Micah warned the people 730-some years before it happened that Israel was going to live in exile, punished for her sins. Because this is where the bad leadership took them. And all this would end one day, verse 3, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. These wise men came looking for Bethlehem, and I wonder when the wise men left on their journey and the Bible scholars went back to their homes. I wonder if they took out the scroll of Micah in their synagogue and started to read again and said, Wait a minute, is the exile about to end? Are we about to be restored? Little did they know that this baby would give his life away on a cross to free us from our sins. So we could live no longer for worldly goals, but for the glory of God. So we could live in salvation and peace, adopted into God's family. But the contrast to me of leaders, the leaders that Micah knew who led Israel astray, and the leader he hoped for one day. The contrast for me between Herod the Great, a paradigm of strong leadership, or this baby that we've been waiting for since Micah. The challenge, the choice makes me stop and think, who would you choose? Like, stop for a minute. Imagine, I'm asking you, what kind of leadership do you value, do you follow? Look in your friend group. Look at what you click like on for Facebook. Look at Look at the influence that you're following or offering. Is it the shepherd leader laying in his life for his sheep, following, loving, kindly, meekly, serving? Or is that too humble for our grandiose tastes? Do we require somebody with more flash, strength, power, pizzazz, somebody who can get things done? And I mean, in the localist level, like even in your own life. I mean, this is a silly way to think about it. But if, if Jesus and King Herod. If Jesus and King Herod were running for election, if they were up for the vote, who would you vote for? Like, I'm, I'm just joking. I'm, I'm just kind of throwing this out there. It's not even just political, but just stop and think. Politics, sports, personal life, your home, your family, friend groups at school. Who are the leaders we're voting for every single day with our cliques with our allegiance, with our role modeling. And the bitter reality is, like we all stand in church and say, oh, Herod was a bad guy, we all picked Jesus. But that is harder than you think. It like gets hard to really pick Jesus and follow the Jesus. It's hard to follow Jesus because Herod the Great never said, take up your cross and follow me. Herod the Great said, If you play by the rules and pay your taxes, I'll keep it good for you. Just don't ask me any questions. Herod the Great never said, Your righteousness has got to exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, now, the, now the, the, the difference too is on what they can deliver. Is it harder to follow Jesus? Tremendously harder. Worth it? Absolutely. Herod the Great did not give you adoption into God's family. Herod the Great can't cleanse your soul. Herod the Great cannot give you peace when you lay your head on your pillow at night. Herod the Great cannot resolve your conscience. Herod the Great can give you nothing that will restore the peace of your soul. Herod the Great, if you follow him long enough, he will ruin you. Now, if you give your life to Jesus and you follow him, that baby born in the manger, it'll cost you everything. It'll be super hard, and lots of times it'll be less than popular because nobody likes the humble leader. Bad guys lose. I mean, good guys lose. But if you will choose Jesus... You'll follow that simple baby born in Bethlehem to give his life away. And if you'll build your life on his teachings and begin to live and begin to lead according to his paradigm, servant leadership, love, humility, sacrifice, service, loving the least of these, then the church that is his body will recover her power to change the world for the better. To make an impact all over the pine belt. It is a hard decision to make if you're honest. It is a hard life to live if you're honest. But it has the potential to change absolutely everything about your future. So today I'm asking you to stand with the wise men. Those magi had a choice. Do they obey Herod the Great, come back and tell him where the baby is? Or do they obey the will of this shepherd king? Destined to give his life away for ransom for many. Well, they chose well. They chose King Jesus. And I'm asking the church today, would you follow a shepherd? Herod the Great. And so at the invitation time, the response for our sermon, I just want to ask you to think about what God wants from you today. Did God give us this sermon, this message, so that we would stop and think about his wisdom, his sovereign plan to say that, That 800 years before Jesus, God was already telling us He'd end the exile? Or did God give us a sermon today because He wants you to shift so that you can use the rest of your life, the rest of your influence, the rest of your leadership in the King Jesus way? Is is He warning you that you're becoming too worldly-minded and He wants you to continue to follow the Prince of Peace? The Christmas story is much more than just a warm story. This is the way God came to save the world. And he's sending you out now as the mission force to be his followers, his body, to bring this gospel to people. Will you live that? Will you become a shepherd in the likeness of King Jesus? Here at the end of the sermon, I want to ask you just to reflect. I want to invite you to a short time of prayer. I want to pray over you and then I want to give you some silence to pray. In just a few moments, you'll hear music behind you. And I'll invite you to stand and sing after you've prayed quietly for a moment. After you've asked God what does he want from you today and then when i invite you to respond i'll be standing down front if you want prayers if god's moving your life there's something you want to tell me something you need help with if you want to give your life to jesus for the first time and be saved i'm here our staff will join me if if you need our, our if you need us we're here the altars will be open for your prayers but first seek the lord for a moment in private father i ask that you hear our prayers Lord, my sisters and brothers are searching their minds and their hearts with you, and I pray your spirit, Lord, would lead each one of us to our next step of obedience in your kingdom. As you transform our lives from the inside out, would you show us, Lord, what you want today? Today. Father, I ask now that you give us the courage to do the things that you're asking us to do. And I ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.